Hello, and welcome to the Future Center podcast. I am your host, Ivana Gazibara, and I lead the Future Center, which is an open participatory futuring platform, helping organizations and individuals prepare for complexity and uncertainty and act for a sustainable future. We are rapidly running out of time to avert the worst of the climate and biodiversity crises. Now more than ever, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reimagine how the world works. As we grapple with what next, it's vital we understand how the world around us is changing right now and what that might mean for the years ahead. So how can we reimagine our future? What do we want it to look like and how do we get there? In this podcast series, we're going to be talking to the innovators, activists, and thought leaders tackling the big challenges and creating the transformative solutions. Welcome to the Future Center podcast. I am your host, Ivana Gazabara, and this podcast series is all about identifying leverage points for transformation in this decade of climate action. And the theme we're kind of working with right now is funding transformative change. So basically, how can we enable capital to flow into the right solution spaces? And how can we create system change strategies as funders and investors to support the change we need to see in the next decade? My guest today is Stefan Niccolo, whose work is kind of at the coalface of some of these questions. And although that's actually a terrible phrase to use for somebody who leads a fund that's essentially focused on investing in climate solutions. So Stefan is the managing director of Full Cycle, fund which invests in growth stage companies focused on technologies that abate short-lived climate pollutants. And their guiding principle is something they call carbon return on investment. Stefan, welcome. It's really great to have you. Did I do that intro justice or is there anything else you want to add? Oh, you certainly did, Ivana. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you. And the only thing I would add is we are at Full Cycle Investors in companies and their infrastructure projects. So we get a really good look at some exciting technologies and the projects that bring them to life in the world. I can't wait to share that with you today. I actually think the area that Full Cycle focuses on is really fascinating. Can you say a little bit more about short-lived climate pollutants and specifically why Full Cycle has chosen to focus on, on this area? Sure, happy to. Um, I think the first thing for, for folks to understand is the climate challenge is really a math problem, right? We are emitting too many climate pollutants like CO2, like methane, nitrous oxide, fluorinated gases, and we're emitting them in abundance and so much abundance that the earth can't absorb and sequester those emissions. And so the result is an imbalance and we have warming in the atmosphere. And so when we think about, you know, the sources of these pollutants, we have to, you know, come to a resting ground of a foundation of understanding that says that humans are emitting these emissions and it's our infrastructure, our oil and gas, our industry, our transportation and logistics that are all participants in those emissions. And so what we have sought to do is really rank the warming potential and use the science that underpins, for instance, the IPCC's vast amount of work over the last decade in this space to then say, okay, well, if we understand all of the emissions and pollutants that are being emitted, 
not all of them are equal and not all of them have, all of them have the same warming potential. And so by targeting the sources of the more outsized uh, warming potential uh, contained in emissions, right? By targeting the sources of methane, nitrous oxide and fluorinated gases in particular in our global economy, we can then map solutions to those problem areas and have an outsized climate effect per dollar invested. And so it's the smartest way to tackle this sector is to really start to get nuanced and understand that not every warming agent in the atmosphere has the same effect. And in fact, CO2 of all of them is the weakest warming gas. It's just the most abundant and it lingers in the atmosphere. But we can breathe CO2. It's part of our water cycle. It's part of our biosphere. Um, methane is as well, but not when it's emitted from uh, our industrial practices, right? Not Nitrous oxide is as well, but not when it's emitted from flooding our farmlands with uh, with fertilizers. So the practices that we do have an effect. And for us, we're focused on having the biggest effect of abating or removing those climate pollutants and those warming agents in the atmosphere um, as possible. And by, by focusing on the shorter-lived climate pollutants, we're able to do that. And when you talk about outsized climate effect per dollar invested. Is that the sort of um, carbon return on investment methodology that you use? Yeah, that's right. So we devised uh, CROI 20. Um, CROI is a measure that's known in our industry. It really just says the carbon return on investment. It means to say for every dollar invested, how much carbon are you abating or drawing down by virtue of that investment? The problem with it, though, is that it relies on a bit of science called the Global Warming Potential 100, meaning GWP 100, meaning the warming potential of a molecule over its 100-year, over its 100-year lifespan. And, you know, the fact that we can look at a methane molecule over 100 years and understand that it is 20 to 25 times more heat-trapping than CO2 tells us about the power and efficacy of targeting these molecules, but it wasn't good enough for us because on a hundred year timeline, you and I will have to be thinking about different solutions that will be effective for this problem. And so what we did is we truncated that down to 20 years. And on a 20 year timeline, methane isn't 20 to 25 times more heat trapping than CO2. It's actually 86 times more heat trapping than CO2. And if we're really being uh, consistent about the math and the, the calculus, understanding the area under the curve in the first year, two years, three years of methane's emissions, it is several hundred times more heat trapping than CO2. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, the, the accurate picture is really important to then say, okay, what's the time frame in which we can start to measure the effect of what we're investing in, the effect of what we're building? And that ends up being 20 years. That's the most effective timeline we can think about because that lines up not only to the molecules true heat trapping capacity, it also lines up to the kinds of infrastructure that we need to build to overhaul our aging 19th and 20th century uh, systems that provide us power and food and water. And so this is our approach for devising CROI 20 is what is the carbon return on investment on a shortened time frame for every dollar we invest? Because remember, we're investors. So we're going out and building projects. And so we want to make sure we're being as effective as possible when we do that. I mean, I love how you've kind of, you've got the science down pat. You yourself have over a decade of experience in the investment space, but not always focused on sort of impact investing per se. How did you even get into this world? Did you, was there a kind of aha moment for you personally? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, 
I wasn't always in climate specifically, but I was, I was pretty early in impact. And the impetus for that was really my experience born from working inside of some of the large global investment banks, um, you know, the mega financial institutions that we all know that are, are part of the engine that creates our global economy and um, sometimes behave badly and sometimes encourage finance and partake in extractive, exploitative behaviors that are bad for our environment, bad for society, bad for communities, bad for people. And, you know, I'll never forget one very late evening working inside of a large bulge bracket bank uh, over in, in Midtown in Manhattan. And the bank was alive at 11 p.m. at night because it was just the beginnings of what we now know to have been the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And everyone was at their desk figuring out how this particular bank would cherry pick the assets of a dying bank next door. And, um, you know, that dying bank next door happened to have on its books many millions of mortgages bundled up into financial products that they had purchased and sold and chopped up and created derivatives off of. And now they were collapsing. And I realized in like the giddy glee on the trading floor of the bank where I was working that uh, a lot of major decisions that impact a lot of lives and a lot of communities were being made by very few people who seemingly didn't care very much about the folks they were impacting. And I swore at that moment I would never partake in any sort of constructive way in that behavior. I mean, instead, I would found my own firm to work specifically with the buy side, go directly to the tap of investors, um, and really help them identify the opportunities to both do well and do good. And it didn't have to be at the cost of people's lives, mortgages, homes, communities. There was another way to do business. And that was really my, my kind of uh, clarifying moment of understanding the intersection of my tutelage in finance, but also the obligation I had as a citizen, as a person, in the world who you know didn't want to participate in something as extractive and exploitative and unfortunately harmful as what i was seeing live in real time at the banks yeah such a it's an amazing story and such a familiar one now isn't it i think that in some ways the the people on the trading floor just could not relate right like it yeah. in some ways the kind of investment system is at times fairly far removed from the real economy. But the world of impact investing has kind of obviously exploded and it and it's getting more and more dynamic. From where you're sitting, what what are the key trends you think are driving this space at the moment? What are investors looking for? Where are they putting their money? Very good question. I would say I would agree with you. I'd say that the sector is exploding in a, a really positive way. You know, there are there are some folks who have been kind of beating the drumbeat for impact for a while and you know, it's, it's a nice and validating moment to see mega institutions start to take this seriously and deploy capital in meaningful ways into the sector. So the first thing I would highlight is, is that institutional investors are no longer looking to each other to see who's going to start first, who's going to take this most seriously and build an investment program and a thesis and hire portfolio managers to allocate to fund managers like Full Cycle. You know, that's no longer kind of a waiting game at the largest institutions. They realize that the intersection of having impact and investing can no longer be two separate things. In fact, all of their investing will need to be considered for its impact going forward, right? So this is a first step in that direction. 
And I think part of what helps that as well is that you now have increased support behind policies and regulations that make it a lot easier for folks to participate in impact investing generally and specifically for climate in this transition to a low carbon economy. All of that's going to be incredibly impactful from a lot of angles, not just creating the infrastructure, drawing down carbon, but also creating jobs and sustainable jobs in communities that typically don't get a look at those opportunities first. And so, you know, policy and regulation is going to be really helpful. I'll give you an example. You know, the Biden administration a couple of weeks ago finally put a, a price target on carbon, on methane, on nitrous oxide. And you know, that one action signals to the market and signals to the existing carbon markets abroad that the United States is back and willing to support a robust, fair, and uh, ubiquitous system for pricing in an externality that we have not yet priced in to the cost of doing business. And that will fundamentally shift not just the, the price of things, but also the ways in which corporate actors and really industry players operate because of the real cost of them extracting oil and gas or producing cement and steel, for example, all of which are incredibly carbon intensive. Well, when you price that in, those corporations make different choices, right? They're less extractive, or perhaps they're more mindful of those costs and they produce at a price point that makes sense, economic sense for them. And so that's a good example of a trend that I think not only will it continue, but will have a major effect on rebalancing um, and, and rethinking how our society, how our systems, how our, our economies come together. And then I think the, the last piece is kind of mechanisms that allow everyday folks like you and me to participate, you know, via retirement accounts and via our savings accounts and via investments into ETFs and stocks that are aligned to impact generally. Now, that's all really new, but I think the market, the market being retail investors, we're really looking for opportunities, not just to access this space, but to do so in a really effective way, right? To be able to actually say, I know where my capital is being deployed. I understand the kind of projects or infrastructure or companies that are the beneficiary of that capital. And they're reporting back to me the climate effect, the carbon abatement effect of those dollars invested. So I have a real handle on my participation in this transition. All these th things are going to be really important. And the fact that they're happening at this moment in tandem, I think signifies a shift. This isn't a trend so much as it is a shift towards what investing will have to look like going towards the future. And indeed, what it is shaping up to be as investors really get, uh, get smart about impact and, and about climate specifically. And going sort of into the future, if you were to kind of pinpoint the top three spaces for intervention in terms of decarbonizing our economies, where do you think investors should be putting their money for greatest impact? Oh, it's such a good question. So I think one of the fallacies that we've got to address in answering this question is kind of who's responsible for the kinds of emissions that we're talking about. And you know, through no one's fault, I think there is a little bit of misperception on behalf of consumers that the choices we make, whether it's a plastic straw or a cardboard straw straw in our beverage, are going to make a meaningful difference for the climate. Of course, we want to minimize plastic waste. So I'm not arguing that we should have more plastic straws. Yeah. But this is a systems issue. Yeah. And so when I think about it, I think about the solutions also have to be systemic in their nature. 
And so the places where we see kind of the most opportunity for disruption really are in where you typically think about, you know, infrastructure solutions. So it's energy, right? It's uh, looking at both the price point of developing certain kinds of renewable technologies like solar and wind. It is now, solar especially, is now the most economic way to generate kilowatts of power in most regions in the world. That's a, <laughs> like a, a massive shift in, in what's available to us. And we do need to spur more of renewable technologies. There's also a bevy of technologies, the kinds of technology that we look at that are not yet commercialized like solar and wind, but have tremendous potential, transformative potential for us to generate power in clean carbon free ways and distribute that power and store that power in ways that benefit communities and, and cities writ large. I think the other piece of it is around circularity. So, you know, the idea of waste is a very uniquely human invention that you can take oil out of the ground, refine it, create a piece of plastic, use it once, and then throw it over your shoulder and pretend it doesn't exist anymore. Nature doesn't operate that way. In nature, the fuel of one system happens to have been the waste from another system. And it's just interlocking systems that create uh, ecosystems and create our current ecology around us. And so getting closer to that, we're never going to get perfect, you know, but, but we can certainly get a lot closer to circularity. And part of how we do that is by thinking about waste differently. Why would we throw something of value, of calorific value away? We happen to be invested in a company called Sonova that creates a waste to value technology that's super innovative, that can take any kind of feedstock of waste, municipal solid waste, agricultural waste, and create molecules of value on the back end, meaning that you no longer have to create new kinds of bioplastics or fuels or anything like that from extracting resources from the earth. You can instead use all of what we've got and what we've produced already to create new molecules. So circularity is a, is a big one. It's a huge opportunity. We're seeing a lot of innovation, not just in waste, but in kind of the sectors that it would feed into. So textiles and fashion, um, energy, and then of course, industrial materials. And then the last thing I would say is around nature-based solutions. So not everything that's nature-based can be commercialized, but we do realize that nature is the best you know, trees, mangroves, kelp forests are the best at drawing down carbon, creating ecosystems and biodiversity, and really just plugging into the natural ways of the earth moving molecules around without having to create, you know, all kinds of technologies. So nature-based solutions are, are incredible. It's just that not everything is investable for investors. Uh, but where we do find uh, investment opportunities in, in that area um, we're really eager and excited to participate because it's the best way to shape investments around what would occur naturally if we just left things alone on the planet. So those are three areas where I think we have some uh, some good opportunity to uh, intervene and to and to use innovation for our advantage. Yeah, in fact, it's almost like we are correcting human-made design flaws, just kind of looking at what's happening in nature. I like that. Is there anything that kind of, for lack of a better word, keeps you up at night? What are you kind of worried that we are missing at the moment and what our blind spots might be in this area? So I have two, two worries that keep me up at night. Um, you know, one is much more at the macro level and, you know, we'll have to get to work at the micro level to address it. But generally speaking, I'm worried about what's happening in the Arctic. 
And, you know, someone just sent me a headline today that just sent that said that one of the largest ice shelves finally broke off. And, you know, this is going to be a trend that's continuing. And there's not much we can do about it beyond getting very serious about drawing down CO2 and changing the, the warming cycles of our atmosphere, which, by the way, is all doable, right? We can trace kind of the emissions related to harvesting and sowing on an annual basis. And you can actually see those gases going into the atmosphere and diminishing at the time of harvest. So we know that we can impact a global climate very acutely in a very short period of time, but it requires kind of globalized action. But the Arctic has me worried because once you lose the ice, it's really difficult to get it back. You know, so that's something that keeps me up at night. And it just means we have to do our work. I think more specifically to what we're focused on as a fund, I think the traditional mechanisms of global finance are really ill-suited for this problem, a problem we've never faced before. And so thinking about what's the most effective toolkit to functionally decarbonize and rebuild our society at the systems level, you know, the tools aren't simply venture capital investing, private equity investing, or public markets investing, right? These are insufficient from a timeline perspective and from an efficacy perspective to actually get the amount of infrastructure in the ground that we need to build. And so what we did is we actually built a new model. We said, we're going to take the best acceleration mechanisms that you find in growth equity, and we're going to apply them to real assets, to the deployment, to the rollout of new kinds of ways of generating power, of dealing with waste, of storing energy. And if we can do that effectively, then we are leapfrogging what has been, call it the 10 to 20 year venture capital cycles that brought us here today. It's the reason we're on a podcast. It's the reason you and I can communicate from around the world, but are insufficient for a problem that is this grand and that, and that is accelerating, right? And so we needed to find a way to take the best of the acceleration models and apply them to the real assets that typically take 10 to 20 years to even build. You know, and no one's really kind of done a systemic program of accelerating the deployment of, say, bridges and toll roads and airports. Right? We've seen a little bit of that in our human history after wartime when a lot was destroyed. But this is a far grander exercise, far bigger, more extensive, more global. But it's one we need to do and participate in. So generating and creating new business models to allow for capital to flow into this sector uninhibited in ways that highlight how effective we can possibly be by using measures like CROI 20, give us a way to then say, okay, we can now take it down from a 20 to 30 year timeline of where we think we'll land and start to get a lot closer to the mark by thinking about 10 year timeline cycles of a fund that is designed to then deploy that capital and then measure its results along the way on that 10 year timeline. So you know, I think these are, these are kind of the ways we can transform our systems and give us a way to think about the future not you know at 2050 or 2070 when we're seeing a lot of commitments get shared but by 2030 where we actually need to start thinking about what the world will look like because we'll still be here living in it and and having to operate and adjust to a, a changing world around us so you've basically kind of gotten on to answering my next question which is great but i just want to dig into what you said a little bit more regarding using the acceleration models of private equity, I believe, and applying them to real assets. Can you just say, humor me as a layperson, can you just say a little bit more about what that means and, and what's kind of new and innovative about it? 
Sure, happy to. So when you're thinking about traditional infrastructure, say an airport, you know, the idea behind the folks who invest and build that infrastructure asset is that you build it for, say, five years, and then you own it for 30 to 50 years. That's the life of the asset. And over that time is where you not only recoup your costs of building it, but you generate a financial return, meaning it operates at a higher level than that which it costs you to build. Well, if you're building 30-year assets and that's how you price in the cost of how you actually build it, then you're looking for returns on that time frame. And that's incongruous with warming climate that's going to change dramatically in the next 10 to 15 years, not the next 30 years. And so for our model, part of what we did is said, okay, well, we can build the asset. We can accelerate the building of that asset. We can reduce the cycle time by using mechanisms that are tried and true in growth equity and private equity, meaning that you systematize and standardize the offering of infrastructure. So instead of saying to a municipality, hey, Kansas City, where you would like to build you a waste to value plant, please tell us the amount of space and specs and amount of waste you generate, and we'll go ahead and custom design a project for you. That's the typical way of rolling out infrastructure. Instead, it's far more effective to say, hey, cities that are of a similar size and ilk of Kansas City, here's small, medium, and large. Which one fits your needs? Right? And to have all of that prefabricated, to have all of that designed in, in ways that are modular means that what once took 16 months to 20 months to build could take four months. Right? There's a lever there for acceleration. The other piece I would add to that is what happens once you're invested. So we happen to have a model where we know that even though there's a value to having that 30-year asset, there is increased value in taking all of the cash flows that are guaranteed over those 30 years, scrunching them down into five years, getting a present value for that asset and selling it, and then taking those gains and redeploying it into more assets. So inside of 30 years or inside of the years that we have to deploy our capital as a fund or a 10-year fund, we can build nearly double the amount of infrastructure that's decarbonizing than we would have been able to build if we had just taken a traditional playbook. And so recycling capital, distributing gains, and allowing us to redeploy capital into more projects is part of our model. And it means that per dollar invested, we get another turn at investing into decarbonizing infrastructure. And that's really going to matter. And what we're demonstrating here is not just that it can be done, but that this is the most effective way to do it and that the trillions of dollars necessary needed to come into the market to decarbonize can do so in a way that is not only value creating, but it also has the potential to accelerate into a, a space that you know typically sees a slow drip of capital because infrastructure is slow at delivering value. Now we can start to change that narrative and galvanize trillions of dollars into this sector. And in fact, that's what we're going to need to face the climate challenge. Yeah, we have um, trillions of dollars of an investment gap, don't we? Indeed. Or so they say. So what you were saying earlier rings very true. It's a kind of systemic challenge. So we need systemic solutions. And, you know, ESG investing, everyone is now recognizing, is just too incremental for the scale of transformative change that we need to decarbonize our economies, right? And yet we also know that capital is a really important part of the solution. So as somebody who spent a long time in this space, you've flagged the whole kind of need to innovate business models. What are some of the other new approaches that we need to investing in system transformation in the places that matter the most? 
So I guess, in, in other words, how do we sort of transform the, the investment system itself, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do that we have not yet done. I think the first is most folks who work have some capital set aside on their behalf to, in retirement accounts, uh, either via their uh, corporations that have retirement setups with the big fidelities and vanguards of the world, or they're part of a public uh, retirement system. And these retirement systems control trillions of dollars around the world, right? The largest is in the US anyways, is CalPERS in, in California. I don't exactly know their, their AUM. If I could guess, it's uh, near or, or just above a trillion dollars. And so what is permitted to be a target of that capital is going to matter, right? That's trillions of dollars of investment capital that can come into this sector. And we're just starting to see uh, out of some guidance from the Department of Labor in this administration that we will have the opportunity to have all of that capital come into mechanisms that are oriented towards climate solutions. That's a big deal. But we need more, right? And other governments around the world need to follow suit so that we have the trillions of dollars at least available, right? At least permitted by the regulations to come into this sector. Then the full cycles of the world have to demonstrate excellence and opportunity and compel folks to deploy capital into these sectors. So two legs of the equation there. I think the other piece, and this speaks to kind of a larger trend and issue that I think needs to be supported, which is how do everyday folks invest at a level that's right for them into the transition to a low carbon economy, as I mentioned earlier, right? Can you spend $10, invest $50, invest $100, and consider yourself a participant in the transition to a low-carbon economy. The answer right now is there are limited mechanisms from which you can do that as an active investor, right? Most funds put a stipulation that you have to be an accredited investor. Do you have to have a million dollars in liquid net worth or more? And so that's by its very nature exclusive of 95% of the population. So how do we make it so that there are safe, accessible mechanisms that are backed, guaranteed, supported by governments and agencies so that people can meaningfully participate and not be excluded from what actually is the greatest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime. Overhauling all of this infrastructure is going to create tremendous amounts of value. And so it is our belief that that should be shared and distributed amongst as many folks as possible to lift people up in this transition. It is possible to do both things, but we do have to kind of have our eyes on that, understand where regulations come in, and maybe in fact where they shouldn't, and then get to work actually creating the opportunities, the vehicles, the funds, and the mechanisms that people can invest into at smaller levels, right? But at levels that are meaningful for them and their communities and actually will point to their ability to participate and spur you know, this value creating transition to a, an economy and a world we deserve to live into. On that final point, are you seeing innovation in this space already kind of allowing, as you say, regular folks to, to better understand how they could participate? Yeah, I am seeing a bit of innovation there. Like I mentioned, that Department of Labor rule is an important one for anyone who's got a retirement account um, where they direct, it's called defined contributions, where they direct the investment of that retirement or can have a role in that direction. That's a meaningful one. I think, you know, you've got a whole class of neobanks, so online-only banks that allow consumers to understand where their deposits go. That's another big area where, you know, most folks don't realize, but the large consumer banks that you and I know very well actually take our deposits and invest them 
into many kinds of opportunities that are opportunities for the bank to finance. And a lot of times that's in oil and gas, that's in private prisons, that's in coal and coal plant. It's in a lot of infrastructure that you and I wouldn't choose to invest in or finance. So there's a whole class of neobanks that understand that and see that connection between what consumers want and where their capital should go. One that comes to mind is Aspiration. Aspiration Bank not only does that, but takes or has programs where they take their rounded up change from transactions and they plant trees, right? And like, these things are not at odds with each other. It is what we should start to expect out of our corporations that serve us on a daily basis. And so I'm seeing that I'd like to see more. And one thing that I'd like to see is the ability for folks fully edified and had with clear eyes to deploy capital into vehicles that will eventually go into private equity and infrastructure into this space, i.e. full cycle, right? We'd like to see that happen in the world because we know people want to participate in this transition and just haven't been able to because of certain regulatory bodies that eliminate their ability to participate. So we want to see that happen as well. I think that's the third leg of the stool. And um, hopefully we can get there over the course of the next couple of years. So kind of mom and pop investors interacting with full cycle. Indeed. Yeah. That's a good vision. Stefan, thank you so much. I think that's probably all the time we have for today. These are really, really big questions for a Friday afternoon, I recognize. I mean, I basically asked you how to transform the investment system. <laughs> so I really appreciate all your thoughtful insight. And to learn more about FullCycle's work, you can go to FullCycle.com. And thanks also to all of you who have tuned in. I hope you found this as fascinating and inspiring and informative as I have. We're going to do it again, keeping with the theme of funding system change. So please log on to thefuturecenter.org to tell us what you want to hear more about and who you want to be listening to. Or even if you just want to connect with us and, and learn a bit more about the work that we do. Talk to you again in a few weeks. Thank you.